Open your Bibles, if you would, to Galatians chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. The guys will be moving down the aisles. Get your hand real high so they can see them. If you get a Bible from us, it's page 632. Okay, Galatians chapter 5. Page 632, guys will be working their way down the aisle. Let me, let me explain to you why I wasn't here last week. I, actually, I didn't teach last Sunday, but I did come to the uh, 4 o'clock service. So I got to hear Tim's explanation of what happened. So now I can tell you the truth. Um, <laughs> so it started, it started two weeks ago Sunday. I really felt awful. So Saturday or Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, I felt really bad. Uh, and, and they're... And they're symptoms are they're, they're a lot of pain but Wednesday morning was particularly bad I taught that morning and and I, I was just struggling I, in fact I had a meeting with Tim and Neil and I said I spent the entire time uh, strumbling for my words and I'm not sure what word that is but but I made it up and so I, uh, I, I my cardiologist I texted and said give me a call when you get a chance and he called and and I said here's what's going on and he said I want you to go to the emergency room and I said uh, no, when I go in the emergency room, he said, you just need to go down there. I'll take care of it. So long story short, we could put a lot of drama in it. There wasn't a lot of drama. Uh, they did a, all sorts of tests because I've had a lot of, first of all, he said, how long have you had these symptoms? And the answer is two years. So, so I've had these symptoms a long time that, that has a lot of numbness on my left side, all the classic things. And when they were all done, the heart muscle's strong, but one of the arteries is essentially 95% closed. And then there were some other things. So they, they fixed that one artery or opened it up. And then there's some other things that we're certain we can fix with diet and exercise. Um, so <laughs> he seemed more certain of it than I did. I said, there has to be a pill for this. So now I have a feeling he and I are going to get close again. So. Anyway, that was, I was in the hospital. I'd never been in the hospital. That's pretty amazing at age 62. I'd never been in the hospital before, so I spent uh, two nights there, and it was great, great team, great nurses. You all were awesome, because here's what you did. Nothing, which is what I always like to have from you, is just prayer and support, and call the girls. You all check in with the girls. It was really weird, because Haley was out of town, and uh, we'll talk about that next week. But Haley was out of town, so we didn't tell her. I just didn't think it was fair to tell her until it was all done. And I figured if I died, she wouldn't be mad that we didn't tell her. And if I was okay, she'd forget that we didn't tell her. And so we didn't tell her. So everything worked out great. You know, I don't know. I don't know. We're goofy. Uh, so, we're, well, that's what makes this work. I'm just like you. Yeah. I did what you would have done, something stupid. So it was, it was ideal. It was perfect. So anyway, we got through it. We're back. I was back at work Tuesday and, um, you know, back on the saddle. So I'll keep you. I, one of the things we've done over the years, and we learned our lesson with Susan, is, you know, we understand the public part of our life. You all are really good to give us some level of privacy, though not a lot. Um, but, but big things we talk to you about. So I'll keep you apprised. If there's, if there's anything other than no, uh, I'll tell you. You'll hear, it from, you'll hear it from here. And if you hear anything other than what I tell you, then, then it's, it's not accurate. I'll give you the truth yeah, as you need to know. Okay? So that's how we'll handle that. <laughs> All right, here we go. Week one in the book of Galatians, we said the book divides into three sections. Chapters one and two, three and four, five and six. The first section is, is biographical. And so that's Paul defending his apostleship and his teaching against the Judaizers who were coming in and saying, Paul's f preaching a, a false gospel. Paul's gospel, by the way, let me just remind you, although, although we've been through this every week and again today, is that salvation is by grace through faith. I'm justified by faith alone. So we'll unpack that. Uh, uh, the second section is theological. And so that's Paul explaining his message of justification by faith. That's chapters 3 and 4. And then chapter 5 and 6, so we're in chapter 5, verse 1, so we're beginning this last section, is application. It's ethic. It's the, it's the daily application of now this theological truth. So I just simply wrote this phrase, and if you've been around here for any length of time, you've already heard this from us, right doctrine produces right living. That when we talk about theology, we don't talk about academic theology, 
we talk about practical theology. So if you think of it as a science class, we have the classroom, but we have the laboratory. This is not just an endeavor to see how much theology you can learn. And the way you know you've really learned it is if it transforms your life. So the only way we know that is, is a transformed life. Change lives, change lives. That, that the gospel comes, and it doesn't just change our destination, meaning you were going to hell, now you're going to heaven. It doesn't just change your designation, meaning you were a sinner, now you're a saint. It, it changes the way you live. If, if this stuff doesn't work itself out in the classroom, doesn't work itself out at work, doesn't work itself out in your life, if it doesn't do that, then you haven't learned it. Okay? And that's what the Spirit of God does. Now, this today, I, I get here. You all know my, my schedule on a Sunday because I talk about it all the time. So I'm here by about 4.30 on Sunday morning, and then I'll get everything the way I want it, and, and I'll go get my coffee, then I'll start. Then Carrie comes in about 5, and just, you know, how's everything going? Is there anything you need? Nope, set. And then, and then between, five, usually it's this, although today it was reversed. About 5.50, Tim gets here. About 6, Neil gets here. They flip today. Don't know why. And, and then we'll have a, a few-minute conversation, 10, 15. We'll talk about sports, what do we do this weekend, whatever that is, and then back to study. So always, Tim will say, what's the big point today? And so the big point is this, is that I'm saved by grace through faith. Now, if you've been with us for the past nine weeks, <laughs> that's been the same point every week. Paul comes back to this over and over and over and over and over and over again. And, and it's not because he doesn't have anything else to say. It's because this is the gospel itself. This is the essence of the Christian faith. This is what it means to be Christian. So it's a combination primarily. What makes me a Christian is what I believe, which will affect how I behave. So when they, when they talk about, so I'll hear this, Bob's a strong Christian man. Well, what does that mean? He bench presses 300? I mean, I, I don't know what that means. He's a good father. He's a good husband. He's a good boss. Okay? That's not what makes you a Christian. What makes you a Christian is that you trust Christ and Christ alone for your salvation. That's what makes you a Christian. When that's in place, those other things begin to follow. But you got a whole bunch of secular humanists that are good husbands and good fathers and good business guys. So the Christian faith is about what we believe, and ultimately it affects how we behave. Now, if you look today, we're going to look at verses 1 through 15. You'll see in verse 1 and verse 13 the word freedom. So we're going to talk a lot about freedom, a lot about bondage. You'll see the opposite of that in verse 1, slavery. So let's, let's just read verse 1, and we're just going to work our way through this. And I can tell you, we're going to camp on verse 1. We'll look at verse 2, 3, and 4 together, spend some time on verse 5 and 6. Verse 7 and 8 we'll talk about. And we'll close by spending the last 15 minutes or so on verses 13, 14, and 15. So Paul writes this in verse 1. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore... Keep standing firm and do not be subject again to the yoke of slavery. Now, words almost sound odd. It's for freedom that he set us free. Maybe stated another way. Here's Eugene Peterson paraphrasing verse 1. Christ set us free to live a free life. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 23, You were bought at a price... Don't enslave yourself to men. And that's exactly the idea that Paul has here in verse 1. These were a group of people who were saved by grace through faith, but they were now submitting themselves back under the law. Remember, that's what we saw. Peter comes, he's spending time in Galatia. He's hanging out with these Christians. And then all of a sudden, the Judaizers come, and here's what they say. They're saying that to truly be a follower of Christ, truly be converted... Truly be a Christian, you must become a Jew too. And so for the men, that meant circumcision. 
So here's what we said. Week after week after week after week, we've seen this contrast. Just going back to what we talked about last week. It was Hagar versus Sarah. It was Ishmael versus Isaac. Teed up for these eight weeks. It's the children of Satan versus the children of God. It's the commandments or the law versus the promises. It's the wrath of God versus the mercy of God. It's bondage versus freedom, flesh versus spirit, lostness versus salvation. So when we talk about freedom, that really resonates in the good old U.S. of A. When he's talking about freedom here, he's talking not just about our personal freedoms. In fact, when we talk about, about freedom, it's almost contrary to the way I'm afraid a lot of us see it in the culture. John Stott says it this way, freedom from my silly little self in order to live responsibly in love for God and others. Freedom is not just merely do whatever you want, to whomever you want, with whoever you want, when whoever you want. It's not to take your life and jettison anything that would encumber you so that you can do whatever it is you want to do. It's to be so free, and in this case, from religion and the bondage of sin, to be so free that I voluntarily now enslave myself to Christ. That's how Paul identifies himself over and over again. I'm a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ, a bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ. So look at verse 2 and 3. Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you and testify to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. So Paul says this. Here's what God's done. We'll talk about this idea of circumcision in a minute. Just grab this. It's what we've looked at in the previous weeks when we talk about law. We'll come back and we'll unpack it, but it's simply the idea of circumcision is my effort to satisfy a holy God and to somehow pay a price for my sin. So Paul says in these verses, we're freed from sin, especially the guilt of sin, and we're free from death. That that we understand, especially as we come toward, toward Easter now. When Paul, I'm sorry, Peter delivers the the first message that's recorded in the book of Acts in the second chapter. He said, Christ rose again, putting an end to the agony of death, not the process of dying. When I was in the hospital, there's all sorts of people in there that are dying. I happen to be one of them, too. We're all dying, okay? But some of them are dying, agonizing deaths. It's not the physical agony, but it's the uncertainty of it. That I could know that to be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. And free from the bondage of sin. I'm no longer under its restriction. Jesus came and lived and died. And in doing so, he conquered sin and he conquered death. One author writes this, and it's pretty cool. He has freed us from the law's deadly curse against my sin. He kept the law we couldn't keep. He paid the penalty we couldn't pay. He won the victory we couldn't win. Therefore, Romans 8, 2, the law of the spirit of life has set me free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Free from the yoke, you see it in verse 1, of slavery. So let's make sure we get this. And I I got, I got that for 90% of you, this is repetitive. I got it. But I didn't write it, Paul did. So apparently he thinks we need to go through this again and again and again. I come into this world separated from God because of my sin. That's why by nature I'm a child of wrath. Okay, So you can go over. I, I got out of the service and I was walking over to uh, say hello to some people. And I walked down the children's corridor and there's uh, two, three, four, five-year-olds right in there. So if you ever doubt the sinfulness of man... All you have to do is walk right down that corridor. And there are these little munchkins who at age two or three, when they can begin to talk, they say things like, mine, me, no. Okay? They just say them. You don't teach them that. They just say it. Why do they say that? Because by nature they're sinners. That's who we are by nature. So the quest for us then is how do I take me as a sinful person and put it in right relationship with the Holy God? 
And you got two basic answers. And Paul's dealt with them over and over and over again. And today he uses the imagery of circumcision. So you have two basic approaches. One is to say, God will solve the problem. The other is to say, I'll solve the problem. Now, when he talks about circumcision in verse 2, he says, if you receive circumcision, then all of a sudden you benefit nothing from Christ's death. He doesn't benefit you. And also, you're now back under the law. So that's what we said about circumcision. Circumcision is me trying to satisfy God with my own works. Christ, on the other hand, represents God's achievement. Circumcision is the idea that, that, that I must do something. Christ is the idea of grace and faith and freedom. Everybody has to choose one of these. So, so don't get hung up in the idea of circumcision. Here's what it represents. It represents man's effort to appease a holy God. Let me be autobiographical. Now, every time I do this, it lights up emails, and you get all excited about this, and you want to discuss, and you want to debate. I'm a heart patient. I don't have time for that right now. So, so don't start sending me a bunch of emails. I got, I'm going to that delete button fast. I put that delete button got bigger this week. Okay. So here's the deal. Okay. I'm talking about me, Tom. Okay. Born, raised, Catholic grade school, high school, college. Now I have friends who want to debate this with me, but I don't know how you can debate my own experience. Okay. My experience was that I was told over and over again, Jesus died for sin, but you have to do something. There's something you have to do in order to be saved. Now, I have all sorts of friends who want to argue with that. I'm just telling you, that's what the church teaches, and that's certainly the practical application of it, because if there wasn't something for me to do humanly, then you wouldn't have things like penance and indulgences and all the things that go with it. You just wouldn't. So, so you got first Fridays. So my dad died. You had a bunch of people spending a bunch of money on masses for his soul. When my dad died, he's either in heaven or hell at that moment. You can have masses till the cows come home. It isn't going to change this dog one way or the other. Salvation is by grace through faith. And, and so you will have people. Yeah, biblical Christianity now. Let's make sure we get that. That's what Paul's teaching. Biblical Christianity. I simply trust in the finished work of Christ. Christ died, and in doing so, he paid the price for our sin. And we, in essence, activate that when, when, when that grace is given to us. And the reality, God activates it, the reality is our faith. The other side is me activating things. So it may be something, like I just said. I was taught that Christ died for my sin, but I had to do something. We quoted from the Mormon webpage a couple weeks ago, where in essence they're saying Jesus died to save us, and now we achieve salvation by obedience. Well, those are mutually exclusive. Either he saved us or he didn't save us. When Christ died on the cross, he did not make salvation possible. He actually died for people. He either died for some, or he died for none. That's a big difference. And I, can, I absolutely can imagine some of you beginning to glaze. You look like me in a geometry class. You're glazed over going, what difference does it make? It makes a huge difference. One is human achievement. One's divine achievement. One is God's plan. One is my plan. So if you turn back, and in your Bible, chapter 3, verse 24, by this point, should be circled or marked up or underlined or yellowed or green or whatever it is you do. Therefore, the law, 324, has become our tutor. So the law, God didn't give us the Ten Commandments to keep and achieve salvation because no one can keep them. We've already broken them, and the standard is perfection. If you break a law, you break the law. The whole point of the law was to lead us to Christ so that we'll be justified by faith. That's exactly the point James makes in James chapter 2, verse 10. If I keep all the law but stumble over one point, I've broken the whole law. So if I say, or you say, I'm not going to say it because it's foolish. I'll let you say it. If I want to somehow make God happy with me, then I, here's the standard. It's not be good, because that always gets ugly, because it's how good. 
And this is how my mind worked. I don't know that anybody taught me this, but this is what I can see. And this, by the way, I think what most people believe, is that somehow God had a prototype computer. Don't know how this worked. And everything I did in my life was recorded in a column that was either good or bad. And then at the end of life, he'd hit a button, and if there was more bad than good, I went to hell. More good than bad, I went to heaven. Well, by the time I was in college, I took my own inventory, and the bad stack was so high that I said, I've got no shot. Let's just see how bad that bad stack can get. And the yoke of slavery was be good. How good? And when you understand... This is, this is why you trying to make God happy on your own will never work because the standard is perfection. And, and if you take the biggest stiff in the world who's never heard Bible, you can finish this, right? Don't we say it all the time? Nobody's what? Perfect. Well, if nobody's perfect, we just acknowledge it, bam, right there. You can't do it. That's the whole point of this. So when you talk to people, you get on a fashion square, you interview 100 people, you say, what do I have to do to go to heaven? The dominant answer is be good. Well, good by whose standards? God's standard is not be good. God's standard is be perfect. Let me help you out, pal. You didn't make it. Okay? That's the whole point. And that's what Paul's fighting against. And that's what he says in verse 3. If you want to now go back under the law, understand what you're doing. Because you're climbing into a situation that is filled with condemnation. In fact, you are cursed under the law. It's chapter 3, verse 10. For as many are as works of the law are under the curse. Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all the things that are written. So if perhaps God has you here today for whatever reason, you're driving by, you saw a sign, you went on the website, somebody brought, who knows? God has you here for a reason. And it may be to hear this, and maybe be able to hear it for the very first time. Is that I want to give you relief. Because you're trying to be good enough to please God, and you feel like you aren't good enough. And the reason you feel that way is you aren't good enough. And I don't want to give you any hope that you'll ever be good enough. You won't be. But... Christ died. And it's as simple as this. It's as simple as believing that when Christ died, he died for me. And I put my faith and trust in him. I'm justified. It's a legal term. I'm declared righteous before God based on what Christ did, not, not based on what I did. Based on his grace and his mercy that's extended to us. And when I add works to it, all I do is take, and this is what, he, and negate the work of Christ. I read a great illustration. There was a, a guy who his great-grandfather and then his father had passed down to him a baseball. And it was autographed by Babe Ruth. And it's not like now. Now everybody is kind of into this, so everybody's with Sharpies and all the stuff that goes with it. So this guy... It's now two generations away. The baseball didn't mean much to him. Some people told him it was worth a lot of money. So he thought, well, I'll sell the ball. But over the years, obviously, the, the thing had faded. So before he went down, I know, you can see where this is going. Before he went down to turn it in, he got his pen and went over the Babe Ruth. And obviously, he found out just what you already know is the ball has no value. That, that's what it is when, that's what Paul's saying to these guys. When you say Christ died for me, but I'm going to add to it, it's like writing over Babe Ruth. You've negated the whole thing. It isn't of any value to you at all. He's not, and by the way, when he, when he gets to verse 4, he says, and you've been severed from Christ. He's not talking about losing our salvation there. He's talking about the, the foolishness of coming to Christ in repentance and faith and then putting yourself back under the law. It would be like after the Civil War, if you're a slave that's been freed and then show back up to be a slave the rest of your life, you said, this is just silly. Verse 5 and 6. For we, through the Spirit, by faith, are waiting for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither the circumcision nor the uncircumcision means anything, but everything means faith through working through love. So here's what he's teaching. We live a life that's powered by the Holy Spirit. Remember the quote from last week? Legalists are led by the law. Hedonists 
led by their desires, materialists led by their possessions, but Christians are led by the Spirit. And we're going to see that next week. Look at verse 16. We, this is where we're going to start next week. For if I say, I walk by the Spirit, I won't carry out the desires of the flesh. Verse 18, if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. And if I'm led by the Spirit, verse 22, I'll know it. How will I know it? I'm going to see that fruit there. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. So he says, if I'm a follower of Christ, I'm led by the Spirit, I'm living by faith, and, and I'm, I'm in this process of waiting. I'm in this process of what God is going to do in my life. Now, again, let me just make this point. We'll move on. It may seem like a small thing to you, especially if next week we start talking about, if you're a Christian, I'll see it. I, I can get somebody saying, wait a minute, isn't it functionally the same? If I say I believe and I work and, and I've got them over there in combination and now I have them over here in combination, what difference does it make? One is a man-centered gospel that says my works matter. The other is a God-centered gospel that says anything I do that's good is a result of God's work in my life. That apart from him, I can't do anything. So when we say to you that Christianity is primarily what we believe and we're saved by faith alone, it's that old adage, we're saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves us is never alone. It's accompanied by a life transformation. If you say Jesus is the Lord, I ought to see it. If you say I'm a follower of Christ, it should be evident. And one of the, I, let me tell you one of the simple ways. Joy. One of the stark contrasts, and you get the heaviness of it when he talks about the, the yoke of slavery, the bondage of sin, the bondage of the law. All of a sudden, I understand, wait a minute, this is not based on my work, but on what Christ did. All of a sudden, there's a freedom, there's a joy in the midst of that. All of a sudden, there's a spirit of thanksgiving. If you think that you did something that resulted in God saying, you're good, you're going to always take credit for something. It may only be the mustard seed of faith, but you're going to be pretty excited about that mustard seed. But if you go, no, wait a minute, he did it all. He saved me in spite of me, not because of me. It's going it, to practically, now here's the practical, it's going to change everything. A.W. Tozer said it this way, here's the problem with our theology. It doesn't ascend high enough or descend low enough. It doesn't get high enough because if I'm thinking I'm making a contribution, then God's not as big as he really is. It doesn't descend low enough because I think if I'm making a contribution, I don't see how sinful I really am. That was one of my big, this sounds really stupid, I know, but as a father uh, of, of two girls, and, and essentially for all their lives, I've known Christ, and they are both good girls. Both of them around age five made a profession of faith. Neither of them wandered away. Neither has really caused us to speak of any sort of trouble. Haley, Haley especially. Haley could have raised herself. I say that all the time. She was like a Gia kid. You just add water to her. And she, she just, and she raised, Haley, anybody, if you couldn't raise Haley, you'd just suck as a person, okay? Now, Sarah was a little more like me, but even Sarah, you know, she'd push you and push you, but, but, but man, you'd sit down, she'd go, I'll do it. I don't agree with it, but I'll do it, and never gave us any of that. Here was my biggest fear with them, is they wouldn't understand how sinful they really are. They'd actually think they were good. But boy, when you understand how sinful you are, all of a sudden that changes everything. God gets bigger and bigger and bigger. You get smaller and smaller and smaller. Verse 7, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? And this persuasion did not come from him who calls you. He said, you were doing fine, but now you've stumbled along the way. That imagery of running is something that you, Paul uses over and over and over again. He talks about run the race. Use a lot of athletic imagery. And, and we point out really quickly that, that by and large, that Christian life is a marathon, not a sprint. I was watching an interview, uh, and I can't, if I, could give, if I could think of the name, I'd give it to you, but it was a, a gal who ran in the 2008 Olympics. And she, she, she lost a medal 
by one one thousandth of a second. I mean, think about that. And she said, I lost it at the start. I just had a slow start. Rarely do you hear somebody in a marathon say, I lost it at the first beginning, those first few steps. It's not just about how fast I start with Christ, it's how I finish with Christ. These are all sound like bumper stickers, don't they? <laughs> but, but it's true. He said, you're running in such a way, and something has hindered you. When, when they run, and you see a track meet, they, they run now in a track in an oval. In that day, they ran to a post and then turned around and came back. And one of the strategic moves in a race was how fast you could cut off the other person at the post. And what they're saying is somebody's come in and they've hindered you from obeying the truth. And that could mean the truth of salvation. That could mean the truth of, 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 of God providing this instruction and power. In you. We don't know. John Stott writes this. Our creed, in other words, what we believe, is expressed in our conduct, and our conduct is derived from our creed. Christianity is not simply something we know. It's something we do. It's not merely a belief in a system or a moral code. It's a theology that comes to life. And he said, somebody's come along. They've cut you off. It's somebody's, and he says, verse 8, it's not the one who called you. Paraphrasing verse 8, this detour does not come from the one who called you into the race in the first place. This is from somebody who's come back in, the Judaizers. And I know a couple things about him, he says. It's destructive, the effect they're having. Look at verse 9. He uses imagery the Jew would get, the idea of leaven. It's a picture of sin. It takes just a little leaven, and it leavens the whole lump of dough. You get just a little leaven in, it affects the whole lump. You get a little sin, sin into the person, sin into the church, and pretty soon now everything is affected by it. He said, here comes this, and it's super destructive. It's like that cancer cell. It's a single cell. It expands from there. It metastasizes, spreads through the whole body. And that cell that started in one isolated place now spread throughout the, the entire body. And he said, here's this sin. This is not a simple sin thing. That's why you need to deal with sin in such a radical way in your own life. How, here you go. How much sin is it safe to have in your life? It's like water. Right? So you, you, if the city of Gilbert said, don't be alarmed. The water supply is 90% pure. You know, really, 90 but That doesn't seem right. How much of that does it take? And that's all he's saying. He said, here's what I can tell you about these people. Number one, coming into the body, it's super destructive. Number two, I have confidence, verse 10, in you, that you won't adopt this, and that these people will be judged by this. That God's going to deal with this. That God is a jealous God, protective of his church. Don't know when, don't know the timing. I'm driving, you know, I tend to be a creature of habit. So I drive, I tend to drive the same way on Thursday morning up to the study I'm doing. And I'm going over McDonald, and there's the church there. And it's got the little, you know, clever little board out front that they change every week with some pithy little thing. And this week said, God is waiting for you. Really? How long is he going to wait? I, I, I think I've told you before. I'm in this pride and been a Christian very long. I'm in this prayer circle. So we start to my left. We're going all the way around. So I'm going to be the last one to pray, which is always the worst place to be because all the good prayers are taken by the time it gets to you. <laughs> Okay. I prayed about everything there is to pray. Amen. Okay. I, Father, I just echo what was that kind of thing. So the guy before me prays, God, thank you for your infinite patience. Well, he's a patient God. But we see him with Ananias and Sapphira. His patience ran out. We're, we're told in 1 Corinthians 11 that apparently were some in the church who died because of their sin. God ultimately judges. And, and, and I don't know that this has ever been said before, but God's not dinking around either. And, and, and by demonstrating patience, sometimes we feel that perhaps he's tolerant, he's going to overlook it. 
Verse 11 seems weird to me. Brethren, if I still was preaching circumcision, why am I being persecuted? Then the stumbling block of the cross would have been abolished. All we can conclude from this is that one of the accusations against Paul, which is exactly the opposite of all the accusations in chapter 1 and 2, is that he was preaching that, that circumcision was inter, uh, uh, needed for salvation. So apparently that rumor is going around. So it's kind of like if, if you're a political junkie, and now so you're Republicans, let's say, you start with like 12 guys and you're down to four and pragmatically down to two. Okay? Once it gets at this point, you just start throwing everything at the other guy before there's too many targets. Now you're focused, and it doesn't even matter. You come here, 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 you fire this stuff, and the idea is I'm just going to have to deal with these things, and something's going to get through. So apparently the opposition to Paul, they're totally out. One saying, oh, he's teaching us salvation by grace through faith. The other said he's, he's requiring circumcision. Paul deals with this in the most logical way. If that's true, why was I persecuted? If, if I'm teaching that, then why did they stone me? Why did they beat me? That makes absolutely no sense at all. There's a, there's a little bit in here, kind of sick him, Paul says, I wish that those who are troubling you would even mutilate themselves, cut themselves up, cut themselves apart, to be cut off from. Now, I want to book, we got, let's say, 15 minutes. to look at verses 13, 14, and 15. Let me read them, and then we'll pull them apart. Verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. In the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. So Paul comes along here, and he's talking about the idea of freedom, and he says, here comes freedom, and let's look at it negatively. Don't use it as an opportunity for selfishness. Positively, let's love one another. I want to go back to that freedom again, and I talked about it earlier. And, and, and we had two instances this, this week that were, to me, really interesting. But in our country, we talk about land of the free, home of the brave. Okay? And we talk about free market and free trade and free enterprise. Franklin Roosevelt enunciated four freedoms, freedom of speech, freedom of worship. I'm not sure I like this freedom coming from government, freedom from want, freedom from fear. So, so again, whatever it is in this freedom, what it doesn't mean is to act any way you want, regardless of the things around you. So here's the simple sentence. The trouble comes whenever... And wherever, freedom is out with, without responsibility. So you had two things this week. You got the chick, the Georgetown Law student. And by the way, this is not political. So again, I, I'm a heart patient. Don't write me a bunch of emails on this. This is not political. Okay? How long do you think this baby's going to work? I'm going to get a ribbon maybe, a little hard. Isn't it? Stupid. Okay, she wants her insurance to pay for her birth control. And she's out. I mean, first of all, it's, a, it's, it's not a very good idea. And I'm not sure I'd want to testify before Congress about what I'm engaged in and wanting everyone else to pay for it. You're a 30-year-old woman. But it's the idea of I have the right to birth control. Or, this is worse, the chick who won a million dollars in the lottery and still wants her food stamps. And her argument is, and you can't really, it's hard to fight with this, I don't have a job. I have two houses and I don't have a job. And everybody's like, here you go. This is how screwed up we've gotten. That seems obvious to me that we may not want to give her food. But she, and she's dead serious. These are my rights. No one's even asking the question, if you're on food stamps, what are you doing buying lottery tickets? Right? Oh, I, I can get really down and dirty on this. But when you pay people to not work, guess what? They won't work. I want to help people who need help, but do you see the attitude in both? The attitude in these is you, you owe me. I'm free. This is why the country's We're so screwed as a country, we have no chance. 
because you have, you have 40, 47% of American households get a check from the government every month. They're not looking for change. It's what about me? What about me? And that becomes the freedom. What about my freedoms, my way? The heck with you. It's why the government, okay, here you go. I'll give you my view. We've got really bad government by really bad people. And the reason they're really bad is because you're really bad and you elected them. That's why. They're there going, here's what I'll do for you. It's never about what's right. It's about what can I do for you? What are you going to get me? How much more of this? You can't have 320 million people all saying, what about me? What about me? What about me? Now, that is not at all. I just made me feel good. Okay. <laughs> That's not all what Paul's talking about. But I thought I'd get that in there because it, like it felt like it needs to be. I haven't been able to get anything in there for a long time like that. And that's not even a con. I'm not even being critical. That's just the truth. That doesn't even have any editorial nature to it. We can't even argue with that stuff. Here's what Paul's saying. Now, God comes along and says, I'll give you freedom. Who's ever in Christ is free indeed. Now, don't do something stupid by using verse 13, by using it as an opportunity for sin. So you're free. You're forgiven. That's not a license to go and sin. I'm free from the bondage of sin to serve Christ. We'll look at it next week. Am I led by the flesh? If so, then I'm going to see all sorts of things in there. You can see if you want to just glance at verse 19, 20, 21. Or if I'm led by the Spirit, verses 22, 23. They're in huge contrast to one another. So he said, here's, a, here's a kind of a good rule of thumb. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, we got to run in. We've so screwed this up. we got to run in and go, that's not a command to love yourself. Paul's not saying here, have a healthy self-esteem and love yourself. Here's what he's pointing out. You already love yourself. That's the most natural thing in the world to love yourself. Let me read to you from the study guide we provided for you. Love your neighbor as yourself, not a command to love yourself. It's a command to take your natural, already existing love of self and make it the measuring rod of your love for others. There's not a harder command in the Bible than this. It means wanting to feed the hungry as much as you want to feed yourself when you're hungry. This is, by the way, I'm going to read this to you. This is brutal. This is like killing you here. It means... Wanting to find your neighbor a job as much as you're glad to have a job. Wanting to help your fellow student get an A as much as you want to get an A. Wanting to help the person stalled on the freeway as much as you're glad you're not stalled. Wanting to give the poor softball player a chance to play as much as you want to play. Wanting to share Christ with your neighbor as much as you're glad to know Christ yourself. It's to use all your creativity and energy and perseverance to do good things for others as you use them in doing good things for yourself. To care about what happens to others as much as you care about what happens to yourself. Can you imagine, and this is, this is great, can you imagine what the church would be like if we were like that, looking out for the other person, the one to our left or right, and feeling the same longing for their happiness as we feel for ourselves? Isn't that amazing? That's all he's saying. He's saying this becomes the driving point. All of a sudden, I'm moving by love. All of a sudden, it's the love of God, the love he has for me, and now my love for him, and if I really love him, it will be evident to the people around me. Let me deal with verse 15, come back to it. Verse 15, he says, but if you bite and devour one another, take care that you shall not be consumed by one another. Let me read you one of the paraphrases. If you bite and ravage each other, watch out, in no time at all, you will be annihilating each other. So, so if I'm not operating in love, I'll, I'll, begin, I'll begin or will begin to just eat each other. Lovelessness becomes destructive. I want to go back to this. Turn to page uh, 623 or 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I'm not sure. I need, probably should go back or somebody, one of you can tell me. Well, I, I don't remember when I taught the book of 1 Corinthians. I do remember... That in the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, 
that when we got into the definition of love, I became swept away in, the, in verse 7. But let me read this to you, okay? 1 Corinthians 13, you know it, many of you, at, at least, not, not so much maybe anymore, but certainly in the old days, you, you, they would read this at, at, all the time at weddings, and it's the love chapter. It's a definition. Paul gives us 15 characteristics of love, eight stated negatively, seven stated positively. And I think in the middle, kind of tucked away there, is really the idea of, of love, real love. So here's what he says. Love is patient. We'll talk more about this next week when we get to the fruit of the Spirit. Okay? Love is patient. Love is kind. There's the positive negative. It's not jealous. doesn't brag. It's not arrogant. does not act unbecomingly. Now, in your Bible, you should circle the next phrase. That's the linchpin. That's what's holding this together. It doesn't seek its own. There's the definition of love. I'm not worried about me, I'm worried about you. I'm not thinking about my agenda, I'm thinking about yours. It's not, it's not provoked, it doesn't take account uh, a wrong suffered, it doesn't rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. I'm going to spend five minutes here on verse 7. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. And when we went through this, when we taught it, and this may be the third or fourth time we've gone back to it, I am really struck by how amazing a family would be, a business would be, a church would be, the world would be if this is how we treated one another. We said really love one another. So everybody's into that. Love, love, love. All you need is love. Love makes the world go round. Love, love, love. Okay? Well, the love that Paul's talking about in biblical love is way different than you meeting my needs. It's me thinking about you, not me. And he says in these human relationships that it's, it's, it's bearing, believing, hoping, and enduring all things. So let's get ready for summer camp. Summer camp is, uh, uh, what, 70, 80, let's say 10 weeks away, okay? maybe a little more, 11 weeks away. So I'll say, look up here. Let me just read to you now. Okay? Love bears all things. Bear means to cover, to support, to protect. Love bears all things is protecting others from exposure or ridicule or harm. This sets me off like a rocket. Genuine love does not gossip or listen to gossip. Imagine that. Or it believes all things. In addition to bearing all things, it believes all things. Love is not suspicious or cynical. It believes the best outcome. It hopes all things. Even when belief in the loved one's goodness or repentance is shattered, love still hopes. When it runs out of faith, it holds on to hope. As long as God's grace is operative, human failure is never final. God would not take Israel's failure as final. Jesus would not take Peter's failure as final. Paul would not take the Corinthians' failure as final. Let me stop and let me add to it. And God doesn't take your failure as final. And then it endures all things. The word means literally, it's a, it, it means to, to endure. It's a military term uh, referring to an army holding a strategic or vital position at all costs, every hardship, every suffering. Love holds fast to those it loves. It endures all things at all costs. It stands against overwhelming opposition and refuses to stop bearing or believing or, or hoping or loving. And, and, and then, here's what happens when you read this. We think big things. Let me give you a little thing that happened this week. And I love this illustration because it's absolutely harmless, but it makes a huge point. I'm walking across campus Wednesday morning. Jamie Rasmussen calls. Now, Jamie is the senior pastor at Scottsdale Bible Church. Jamie is a friend of mine. When I was in the hospital, I sent a text to Jamie. I'm saying I'm in the hospital. No need to worry. Um, not looking for visitors. Talk to you later. And so then when I was out, I called him. So he calls Wednesday morning. He said, how are you? I said, I'm, I'm great. He said, I just heard from two people you had a stroke. Now, I didn't. doesn't matter. Nothing's harmed. But step back and goes, what's into that conversation? What compels a person to want to talk about that stuff? How much of your life is wasted talking about things like that? So what, do you appear really smart? I guess you could, some convoluted way, say, I'm going to pass on something that, that, that I haven't bothered to verify that turns out to be not true because Jamie would want to know. Isn't that interesting? Doesn't it just reveal a little bit about your heart? 
Isn't that the, the, the interesting thing in, in all of these stories? And all, I cannot, and I, I don't watch it. I've never watched it. I can't get away from it. I, if I never hear the word Kardashian again, I'm going to be a happy person. Why do I need to know about these Kardashians? And the, and the sad thing is, you don't know anything about Washington or Lincoln. We, we got kids that know all the Kardashians and their social security numbers, and they can't tell you who the first president of the United States was. I forget what the last statistic I saw. Something like 37% of high school seniors can't tell you the first president of the United States. That is not good. Man, they know the Kardashians. Now, if you want to just pill your life away in that, I'm fine, but I'm going, well, it says more about you than it does the Kardashians. Or all this stuff about who wears what. Here's the way he closes this section. Love bears what otherwise is unbearable. Think about this. Think, think about, put yourself in a relationship. Maybe it's with your spouse. Maybe it's with your kids. Maybe it's with your parents. Maybe it's with your boss. Where you say, you really love. I really, really love this person. Okay? Love bears what is otherwise unbearable. Believes what is otherwise unbelievable. Hopes what is otherwise hopeless endures when anything less than love would give up. After love bears, it believes. After it believes, it hopes. After it hopes, it endures. There is no after for endurance, for endurance is the unending climax of love. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about this, we're saved by grace through faith. We've made that point over and over and over again. But that faith is a transforming faith. It doesn't just transform your life. It transforms relationships. It transforms churches. Imagine us for a second. I know this is never going to happen. I know this is way too big a dream. But let's just say imagine. Imagine if for a second we really did love one another. We really did care for one another. Imagine for a second there were people in your life who you loved so much that you've been praying for them and, and you're going to risk a relationship and say, you know what, I love you so much that I want you to understand that, that there's salvation in Christ. Will you come, come with me to Good Friday, Easter? See, that's what love is. Love is action. Love has emotion to it for sure, but it has an action. For God so loved the world he gave. If you love, your life will be a life marked by giving time, energy, effort, money to the people around you. And in some cases, to total strangers. And oftentimes, this kills me, that's enough, right? And oftentimes, I'm going to end up having to love people I don't even like. I can't do it. Perfect. The Spirit does that. That's where we pick up next week. If you're in the conference center, the guys are going to come close your time there. Here, Neil's going to come lead you all in communion, and then a time of, of worshiping the Lord through music. So let me pray as Neil comes. Father, thank you for these awesome and amazing truths. You are a great God who loves us and cares for us and blesses us. God, thank you for that reality. And now as we here begin to talk about communion, remind us again of your love that was manifest on the cross. We pray to you in Christ's name. Amen.